I've got a cheeky little red now. Ooh, fancy. One of these offers came through. Buy a case of mixed wines <laughs> and you can get 75% off. So I've, got, so I've got a case of wine in my house, which is a very dangerous thing. <laughs> <laughs> Who would refuse that, to be honest? Well, exactly. Welcome back to the show, Chris Hawley. He's three summer girls oh, in. And, and, and on to the wine now. <laughs> And I kind of built it up in my mind. It's like, oh, good price is Anthony Hopkins. That's the thing. Like, I know self-tapes are convenient, but you lose that human connection. Absolutely. So that's what we've got to look forward to. A resurgence <laughs> of live theatre and uh, STDs. Fantastic. <laughs> right then, folks. What'll it be? Hello, welcome back everyone to Two Actors Walk Into A Bar. This week we are once again joined by our theatre dad, Chris Hawley. Chris is an award-winning director, writer and producer who also runs his own theatre company, Black Box Theatre, here in the UK. Chris was also our guest on last week's show. However, after we finished recording that episode, he came back onto the Zoom call with a freshly opened bottle of wine. So we kept drinking, kept talking and ended up recording a whole other episode with him. So, hello again to Chris Hawley. I remember you telling me something about, a, like, a workshop you went to. I went to, to a director's workshop, and there was probably about a dozen young thrusting directors <laughs> at this workshop. And the Thrusting? And the guy that was um, running the workshop said, I want you to write down five things on post-it notes that encapsulate what you think about theatre and what you want your theatre to be. So one of the things I wrote was entertaining. I pinned it up on the board and everybody went, ooh, you sure? (laughs) I went, what? (laughs) You know, and they were putting, oh God, they were putting some wank up on the fucking board, I can't tell you. (laughs) And um, and anyway, of course then... When we all came to sort of look at this board and the and the guy who was running the uh, this this workshop, he went, ah, now we've got an interesting one here, entertaining, and everybody had their sort of you know their their head in their hands, kind of going, oh Christ, oh Christ, here we go, here we go, and he went, absolutely, if theatre's not entertaining, <laughs> what the hell are we doing? And it's and everybody went, hey, hey, what, what? <laughs> you know, and it's true, you know, and entertaining is covers a very very broad church you know different people are are entertained by different things but unless you engage with an audience unless you entertain an audience what is the fucking point you're not going to sell any tickets if it's not entertaining because nobody's going to want to see it if you haven't got an audience then you're just rehearsing it's not ever going to materialize to anything exactly that and it's and it doesn't necessarily mean it's all razzmatazz and, you know, big smiles and, you know, hey, it's, it's, it's not necessarily West End musical entertainment. You can do some really dark, heavy duty stuff, but it's still got to be engaging. It's still got to entertain that audience. And, th- and if you can really engage an audience, you can do anything. You know, you can make them laugh. You can make them cry. You can educate. You can make them think about you know some quite serious issues in a different way but for christ's sake it's got to be entertaining it's got to be engaging otherwise like you say you might as well just carry on re- you know being mm. in a rehearsal room wanking each other off I mean. <laughs> <laughs> i went to see um uh michael sheen in hamlet mm. shout out to michael sheen he might not like where this is going though <laughs> If he's listening. If, he, if he's listening. 
I love Michael Sheen. I think Michael Sheen is an extraordinary actor. And I was so excited about going to see him play Hamlet. And it was at the Young Vic. And they took you through the stage door. And they'd set up all backstage like it was like a school or something. It was a bit odd. And there was people sort of in rooms having fencing lessons. So you kind of think, oh, this is interesting. Anyway, you got to your seats by coming through this um, reception area across the stage. Anyway, the play started and it turned out that the whole thing was set in a mental hospital. You know, you could say that Hamlet is about madness, but it's not really. It's, it's, you know, it's much deeper than just Hamlet's madness or his profane madness or whatever it is. Anyway, so you had Hamlet was a mental patient, as was Ophelia. Claudius was like the head doctor, but Gertrude was a mental patient. Horatio was one of the doctors, as was Polonius. It was shit. <laughs> only, and the only the only really entertaining bit about it was somebody in the front row projectile vomited and very, <laughs> very nearly hit. Was that part of it? No, honestly, it was a shocking, shocking. Because they, what they did was they shoehorned the idea that it was in a mental hospital. They shoehorned this play into a concept, you know, which was, and I thought, Poor old Michael Sheen was acting his little bloody socks off and getting nowhere in, in this play because it was a dreadful, dreadful concept. But it was interesting. At the end, how many people got to their, you know, got to their feet and were cheering and clapping. I thought, Emperor's New Clothes. We think we ought to think it's wonderful and magical and marvellous. When in actual fact, it's not. It's, it is. It's just the... You know, the director having a having a sort of a moment mm. on his own. But, like you say, for some, it's like, oh, it's so out there. I have to love it because I've never seen anything like it before. That doesn't, yeah. I don't, just for yeah, me, that no. doesn't necessarily make it good. And again, I, I've been to see so many things over the years that you think, I ought to love this. Mm. And you sit there going, I'm bored out of my brain. Surely it's got to make sense for it to be worth seeing. And if it... If there's no... It doesn't necessarily... Do you know what? It Actually, it doesn't even necessarily have to make sense as long as it's engaging, as long as you're kind of going, oh, wow, you know, do you know what yeah. I mean? I've come out of theatre going, I've got no idea what that was about, but blimey, it yeah. was good. If you're glued and fixated by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Of the shows that you've seen, what are the sort of two or three that really stand out in your mind as being great pieces of theatre? I've got a bit of a weird one, but again, it was a not necessarily felt like it made sense and isn't even the sort of thing that I would... The Tweenies Roadshow. <laughs> <laughs> it was Teletubbies on tour actually but there we are mm. um, <laughs> no it was John by DVA and I'm not really into choreographed dancey stuff particularly Yeah. Um, but I felt that was really powerful and I don't know whether it was again because I was only about 16 when I saw it so I almost felt like we just studied oh <laughs> death of the maiden yeah, that's the one. Um, we'd just done that. And th this teacher had sat there and said, eat my, see you next Tuesday. And I, I was like, oh my God. You know what I mean? All we'd done at school was like the importance of being earnest. So it was all pretty tame. <laughs> um, <laughs> and a bit of Animal Farm. Obviously, that's got political connotations, but they tried yeah. not to tell us too much about that for yeah, fear yeah. of making us shit our pants or something but well that you'd all turn to be communists <laughs> <laughs> we went and saw this john by dva and all the choreography and stuff like that doesn't particularly wow me but 
um, there was a really strong message. And like I say, maybe it was because it was a bit explicit and I was kind of like, wow, I shouldn't be seeing this. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but it stuck with me, I'd say. Yeah. What about you, Dave? Uh, the first one that came to mind when you mentioned that was I got to see Oedipus with Ray Fiennes at the National. And I remember that kind of, that was a really powerful performance. My friend Louisa didn't like it because the stage kept moving. <laughs> and that was the one thing she was like, that just annoyed me. They, they do they do like that at the, uh, at the National. Yeah. Big moving stages. Uh, when you mentioned that, that's the first mm. one that came to my head. And it was mainly for the performance. And I think the moment when, spoiler alert for Oedipus, when he finds out that his girlfriend and mum are one in the same, and when he just screams, I was like, fucking hell, this is amazing. See, I saw I saw Ray Fiennes in Love's Labour's Lost. Actually, I saw him in a couple of things. Love's Labour's Lost at the National and Leah. Two very different shows. Oh, but in both, he annoyed the crap out of me. <laughs> oh. You didn't like the dick either, did you? No, I didn't, didn't no. Like- I don't like him. <laughs> Yeah. I think that's it. <laughs> Whereas for the record, I'm a big fan of Ray Fiennes. And, <laughs> and I want to work with him. You know, if he's listening, why don't you come on the show? And I will blow smoke up his bottom. <laughs> I just, no, I just find him an annoying actor. I can see him doing it. I can see him acting. It haunts him in his nightmares. And on stage, he was all flicky, flicky hands. And oh, it's like, it was like, it was like a traffic cop. <laughs> Such an analogy. Uh, it, it just annoyed me. Well, I don't think Ray Fines will be getting into any black box theatre company shows in the near future. <laughs> Sorry, Rafe. Stick to your Hollywood movies. Because I'm doing, I've got my own company. I don't want to, you know, I've got no pretension of becoming this big multinational company. I just want to keep it nice and local. I don't give a monkey's toss anymore about sort of, you know... Upsetting anyone. <laughs> I'm going to upset, you know, a big-named Hollywood actor because, quite frankly, I'm never going to meet them or work with them, so it doesn't matter, does it? No, it's a, but it's interesting, I think, you know, those plays that do stay with you, and it can be for all sorts of reasons. It could be a pantomime that you saw when you were five years old or, you know, it could be something really deep and meaningful that you saw at the National that kind of really touched you or... Or inspired you to to work or you know get involved in the business or whatever. I mean, it's one of the first plays that really just knocked my socks off. So I was acting and I knew a lot of people in the theatre. And a friend of mine was a stage manager at the National. He said, "I'm working on this show. Do you want to come and see it?" I said, "What's it about?" He said, "Well, it's three and a half hours long. It's about homosexuality, AIDS, and political corruption in America." I went, "Fuck no, I really don't." He went. There's a party afterwards. I went, all right, I'll be there. <laughs> and it was Angels in America. The first, you know, the first time round. Yeah. And I know they've extended it now to about a seven hour show. And it was one of those shows you sit down thinking, oh, Christ, when's the party start? <laughs> and I sat down and I can't tell you how amazing and theatrical and engaging the whole thing was. I mean, it was, it was ridiculously theatrical. And it was it was so beautifully done. Mm. I mean, there was a big, you know, towards the end, there was a big angel just crashes through the back wall and, you know, with completely false wings and you could see all the wires. But the way that it was done, it was meant to be theatrical. And I think that's the beauty of theatre is don't try and make it television. Don't try and make it film. Mm. It's theatre. Make it theatrical. And I think that was the first time I saw something on stage where I just went, yes, that's what theatre should be. And I've seen other things. I mean, I saw this play at the Nuffield, actually, a few years ago, 
called Orpheus. And the only reason I went was because I got a free ticket. <laughs> and um, So parties and free tickets are the way to get you to oh, see shows. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it all started off uh, with this amazing sort of small... So the, so the stage looked like a, a, a 1920s French Parisian club. They had this amazing little sort of house band playing music. And then this woman ca- came on with this ridiculous French accent and uh, and started singing like Edith Piaf. And you're kind of going, OK, I thought this was Orpheus, you know, Orpheus in the Underworld. And she sung a couple of numbers and it was wonderful and marvellous. And, uh, and then she sort of said, and uh, now, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to introduce you to Django Reinhardt who will be playing the part of Orpheus. Now, Django Reinhardt was a two-fingered jazz um, guitarist from the sort of 1920s, 30s. I'm thinking, where is this going? Where? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure this is called Orpheus. He came on, played the guitar brilliantly, and she sang, and it was... And then they went into the story of Orpheus, and they mimed the whole thing to music, and it was utterly, utterly brilliant. And I can't explain why. And I can't explain to you what the story was or any. It was just you sat there mesmerised by the theatricality of the whole thing. I think the company was called Little Bulb Theatre Company. It was just a fabulous, fabulous piece of of theatre. And I think that is what, you know, you hope to sort of, you strive for. Whether it's you're doing a piece of Shakespeare or, you know, a children's TIE or, you know, an out and out sort of, good old British farce, as long as it's, th- you know, really rooted in theatre and it's not trying to be anything else, I think that's kind of what you aim for. And it annoys the shit out of me when I go to the theatre and see stuff and you kind of go, yeah, that was all right. Because <laughs> theatre should be magical, shouldn't it? Yeah. It should sit there like you were as a five-year-old watching those pantomimes or whatever it was, in, in wonder and, you know, just completely immersed by what's going on you're completely right you've you've hit the nail on the head there i mean especially as well considering that a lot of theater shows are quite expensive you want to go there for an experience like no other so i guess to come out i get even though it was quite funny the way you said annoyed the shit out of you it is quite an apt thing to say if you spend all this money and make an effort to go to the theater and it's just Meh. But I don't care whether I'm paying five quid to go and see an amateur show or a hundred quid to go and see a professional show. And, and to be quite honest, I've seen more professional shows where I've come out and gone, gone, yeah, and that really annoys me. Mm. You, you know, I go and see an amateur show and you come out and go and go, yeah, it wasn't so great. But you kind of go, it's an amateur show. I've only paid a fiver. But I've seen some amazing amateur theatre. I mean, truly amazing amateur theatre. Mm. It's just having that experience. And, it, and it's an experience which isn't like watching television or watching film. And you can watch, you know, amazing stuff on film these days, you know, with CGI and whatever. But it's, it, it doesn't touch you in the same way as going to see a really amazing piece of live theatre. I think what you said as well about it being theatre and you embracing it for being theatre is yeah. why sometimes it, it doesn't sit right when you watch something where they're obviously trying to create the illusion that there isn't stuff going on behind the scenes. And I, I kind of like, I also kind of like um, uh, theatre companies that you can see it all, all happening. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that sort of slightly deconstructed theatre. We did it a little bit with, um, the first show that I directed with David was we did Bouncers. And of course you've got a, a in effect a, a blank stage nothing on it apart from five blocks 
and four blokes in tuxedos. And you have to create the scene. You have to create the characters purely physically. So that was, a, you know, for me, it was, it was a real sort of stretch to do that. I think we really pulled it off in as much as it was, ent- it was entertaining. Physically, it was really demanding. I mean, on the f- I think on, at the end of the first day of rehearsals, I said to the guys, wear something loose tomorrow because we've got the choreographer coming in. Yeah, that was terrifying. When we heard that, I was like, what? They all kind of went, yeah, exactly. The, 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 the what now? Um, and my, my friend Abby came in. So we had dancing going on. We had sort of big musical numbers. David, dancing. I know. Oh, yeah. Who'd have thought, eh? I know. Frightening. Um, but it was. It was a real theatrical piece. Mm. I mean, it's written as, as such, you know. It was very much... Mm. I saw that play back in 1984, 85, up in, uh, at the Edinburgh Fringe when Hull Truck did it. And and again, that was one of those plays that kind of went, wow, how to tell a story with nothing on stage. And I love that sort of theatre because it's real theatre. You can't do it on film or they did. I mean, with War Horse, for example, have you seen War Horse? Mm, yeah. I've not seen the film, but obviously oh. it's a real horse or CG horse. Seeing it on stage... I mean, there was, there, was a, there was a point in that play where the horse is galloping and then it stops. You can see it breathing. Mm. Yes. Yeah, but you can still see the guys working the horse. Yeah, being the legs. and You yeah. can see how it all works, but it's still magical. You know, and then they did it on film and you're kind of like, yeah. It's a horse. It's a, it's, it's, it's a horse. Yeah. You know, and it's a nice story, but it, it didn't have the same magic. Because it wasn't that live theatre thing. It wasn't, you know, they didn't pretend that it was a real horse. It was very obviously a puppet. But you were absolutely were drawn into the story of this horse. You believed this thing, this puppet, this massive great puppet with guys working it was real. Oh, God, it was beautiful. I saw Jane Eyre at the Mayflower in about 2017, I think it was. And this guy, he must have been... I mean, unless he looked an old 30, he must have been at least 50, but had like just the, you know, the like the monk's hair, just white at the <laughs> sides and the back, <laughs> all gone on top. Um, but he played the dog in it. And I was kind of like, to begin with, he had this little leather, I don't know, it was just like a leather loop that he was using as a tail and was like wagging it against his leg. <laughs> I don't know, like, to begin with, I was like, this is perverse. <laughs> and then, and then I, I sort of came round to their way of thinking and, and was I wholeheartedly believed that man was yeah. a fucking dog. Yeah. It was really yeah. strange. I think as well, like obviously with stuff like Lion King and War Horse, there aren't real lions and horses on stage. But if the performance is convincing enough, you almost don't see the puppeteers. You just see the animals. I, I did a TIE donkeys years ago we did uh, the happy prince by oscar wilde and as, as a puppet show and we were so there's two of us were the puppeteers and of course initial rehearsals i'm acting facially physically i'm doing all the with the puppet mm. and the director sort of said no you've got to kind of be neutral it's the puppet that does all the actions mm. and you know that, that that's the character not you and it was a very difficult thing as a performer to be neutral and putting all your sort of energies and all your sort of mannerisms into this basically inanimate object yeah it was an extraordinary 
experience actually to do. Dave, you didn't quite manage that, did you, with the monkey? (laughs) (laughs) For context, I had to perform a song with a monkey puppet in 39 Steps. Everybody remembers the monkey in 39 Steps. Yeah, singing (laughs) the song Speedy Gonzales. I'm sure that was in the original novel. (laughs) I've decided it's it's my thing to get a song or a dance into every one of my performances. Brilliant. We'll look forward to that in Blythe Spirit. I'm hoping I won't be a part of that. Oh, you that will. That would be a travesty. Oh. I couldn't even do the fucking twist for Speedy Gonzalez. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, you just expect everybody's got those moves. <laughs> well, in A.L. Hitler, there wasn't a dance routine in A.L. Hitler, and Dave went out for an hour. Yeah, I went back. out for an hour to get costumes, and suddenly <laughs> I was like, I've done a dance number to Gloria Gaynor. And I'm like, what? <laughs> That's not in the script. You went, I know, it is now. Another one for you, sir. This podcast is sponsored by WeAudition.com. WeAudition.com is a revolutionary website with loads of fantastic and useful resources for all you wonderful actors out there. On WeAudition, you can find a rehearsal or self-take partner instantly, audition and take general meetings on video chat, get career advice from a wide range of industry professionals, and you can even earn money for rehearsing with other actors. So for all the listeners of Two Actors Walk Into a Bar, we've got a cheeky little voucher for you. Everybody loves a voucher, don't they? It's 25% off a pro membership. Two Actors, 25. T-W-O-A-C-T-O-R-S, 25. Shazam! Have you, you need to see it. It's very creaky because it is old. Okay. Um, educating Rita. Oh, yeah, yes. with Julie Walters. Yeah, I saw it. Did, yeah. did you see it? It's quite creaky, isn't it? I mean, it feels very much of its, you know, an 80s Yeah, it was funny because thing. she spoke about that, didn't she? And that, um, what I can't even think what it was called. Just about her, wasn't it? A documentary about her and yeah. her life and what Yeah, you... We always think of her as being a comic actor, but that she did this amazing, you know, it was a drama, but it was about Mo Molum. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I saw that as well. Oh, crap. Yeah. Oh, shit, man. Is... She was brilliant mm, in that. Deep, though, as well. Did you see the wow. National Treasure one with her and Hagrid? Yeah. <laughs> Hagrid. Her and Hagrid. Bobby <laughs> <laughs> Coltrane. But honestly, <laughs> I don't think actually she's given the credit. You know, people like Maggie Smith and Judy Dench mm. and, you know, are thought of as being our greatest actresses. But I think she's yeah. up there. I saw something about Miriam Margulis a little while ago. And she was saying about how, to some degree, she is actually more of a voice actor than she is character. Yeah. And yeah. she feels like she's missed out in some ways and was never recognised or her talent was never recognised in the way that she yeah. hoped it always would be. And now it's a bit too late. But she's had a she's had quite a brilliant career though. Yeah, she's worked with Martin Scorsese. But she was like, "I'm Professor Sprout yeah. to everybody." Must get irritating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but why should it though? Because I think it's a generational thing as well. That doesn't really matter. And if you're only known for one, do you know what? If you're only known for one thing, fuck it. If it's given you a career. You should embrace that. Yeah. Mm. I hate it when actors kind of go, oh, no, you know. Well, Alec Guinness famously hated the fact that people recognised him just for Star Wars. And he's like, I've yeah. done all of this. But mm. everyone all, yeah, exactly. loved him because yeah. he was Obi-Wan Kenobi. And he also made 30 million quid out of it. So <laughs> shut the fuck up. 
<laughs> yeah, take that, Alec. I can say about the, the generational thing as well, her in particular. I remember um, my dad saying something about like, oh, well, I whenever I think of Miriam Margulis, I think of her in Blackadder. Yeah, okay, I, I yeah. didn't mm, think of her yeah. in that. I yeah. met her once, but oh, back in the mid-90s. She is terrifying. She is properly terrifying. You know when you meet somebody <laughs> and you say something and she she just gives you this look as if to sort of, you know, you just said the worst thing oh. imaginable. What did you say to her? I can't <laughs> even think what it was. I don't think it was anything offensive or anything. But she just shot me this look as if to sort of say, you are a piece of shit. And I thought, oh, God, <laughs> absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Right, how many other actors have you offended in your years of treading the boards? Oh, lots, I'm sure. <laughs> it's interesting because, again, you know, being in and around the business for the 30-something years, and a lot of that was up in London, you do meet, you do end up meeting a lot of actors. And I was very fortunate, actually. I think, you know, the, some of the people I worked with or met. Um, but, yeah, terrifying at the same time were you ever starstruck much would you say all the time did you get all like all hot sweaty can't talk to them yeah absolutely (laughs) i met uh anthony hopkins i've I've met him a few times um but the first time i met him i knew i was going to meet him oh even worse not even sprung on you like no it wasn't no and um so i and i kind of built it up in my mind like oh christ it's anthony hopkins and um (laughs) uh and anyway, so I walked into the studio and um, I introduced myself. First thing he said was, call me Tony. Oh, <laughs> Tony. Um, and uh, he said, I think we've met. He said to me, I think we've met before. <gasps> oh, Chris, you hadn't. You didn't forget meeting Anthony Hopkins, did you? <laughs> no. no. I, I, I just turned around and went, I think I'd have remembered. <laughs> um, but again, the, the, and, and I've been very fortunate to meet some big names like Tony, um, and <laughs> my um, old mate Tony, <laughs> my old right, Tony. Tony. <laughs> uh, and, um, and there's something about them that they you can't help but be starstruck. Mm. They're not like ordinary mortals. Mm. Um, I mean, he was an extraordinary, and it well, is an mm. extraordinary man, extraordinary actor. I once went round to his house, and he was um, just about to film a thing called Road to Wellville, which is about Kellogg, who invented Kellogg's cornflakes. And um, he had his script on his desk, and he obviously caught me looking at this script. And he'd marked up not just his own parts, but everybody else's parts in different highlighter pens. And he explained to me how he approached a script, a film script. So not only does he learn his own lines, he says he reads a script about 300, 350 times. Keeps reading it through and through. He not only learns all his own lines, he learns everybody else's lines. Which is absolutely fucking terrifying for anybody, <laughs> any actor. Because you kind of go, if you trip over a line, he knows what you're supposed to have said. <laughs> but anyway, he sort of rustled around in his drawer and came out with these teeth. They were like, almost like rabbit teeth. <laughs> and, start, and, started, and started doing this character. And I'm kind of like stood in his study, kind of going, okay. And he was just reeling off this character. And it was the character he played. It was Kellogg. Uh-huh. And he wa- and it was interesting because he always said, he said to me, he said, he works from the outside in. And we're always told as actors, you should work from the inside out, you know, sort of that whole method thing. He said, no, give me a you know, pair of shoes or a moustache or a set of teeth. Mm. And then other sort of actors, you know, big, big actors that I've known, you kind of sort of say, 
So how do you approach character in the kind of... And they don't want to analyse it. They don't want to... Perhaps they don't even really know themselves. Yeah. Mm. That plays um, into the... It, something being in you, though, rather than yeah. like you are born to act it, not necessarily not being in everybody. Is it kind of like a magician doesn't reveal his secrets type mm. thing? It's not even that because a magician knows how he does it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I spent a lot of time with Judy Dench. Name drop. Um, <laughs> Let me pick that, pick that, one, up. Pick that up for you. <laughs> pick that one up. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I asked her, and I sort of said, you know, how do you approach a character? And she would never. She would never say, I asked her husband and I asked her daughter, I sort of said, you know, they thought that she was too afraid to actually analyse it too much. Mm. Just let it happen. If she did, she was afraid that it would disappear. Uh. Uh, but but she, and we're talking about acting chops, you know, to have that sort of, I mean, a born, an absolute born actress, a born performer, is just kind of oozes out of her. She can't stop it. <laughs> Mm. Whereas most of us have to work really hard at sort of finding the character, learning the lines and all that sort of stuff. It just comes to her so naturally. It's frightening. And, you know, you're in her presence or Maggie, you know, with Maggie Smith or people like that. You just kind of go, OK, I understand why you are so brilliant and so amazing. And, you know, I've got all the plaudits and the jobs that you've got because they're not like ordinary people they really genuinely not yeah do you know what i mean there's so you know you hear about these sort of savants and who are utterly amazing at what they do but perhaps the rest of their life isn't quite so normal yeah and i think you know and again i've been around people like that i mean certainly you know anthony hopkins a renowned alcoholic i spent some time with robin williams uh alcoholic coke addict and they're quite you know obviously reformed or whatever but they're they're not what you think of as ordinary people, but fascinating to sort of spend time with. But it's interesting you say saying about being starstruck. I actually sort of said to um, Judy Dench, I said, uh, do you ever get starstruck? I mean, Christ, she's one of the biggest stars in the world. <laughs> and I said, do you ever get starstruck? She went, oh, Sean Connery. <laughs> and I said, I said, you've worked with Sean Connery. She went, I oh, know, but oh. He's lovely, um, and she got and she really got quite peculiar oh, about I... the thought of about, about the thought of, and she got the same about Johnny Depp. She had a fridge magnet of Johnny Depp on her fridge. She thought, oh, he's oh oh. I said, but you're working with him. She went, I oh, know. Oh, I bet she loved that scene in the fourth Pirates movie where he kind of nibbles her ear. She's probably like, oh, there was no acting involved there from her. I don't suppose there was. It's interesting because you, you mentioned about, you know, the, the Anthony Hopkins and the Judy Dentures. There's obviously something yeah. about them that makes them yeah. such great performers. But have you ever yeah. come across any actors who are kind of just meh, flippant about it and just kind of, I don't know, fall into a performance or just kind of don't really have much of a care about it because a lot of us actors really put in the work and the passion but are there any out there that are just like no i've worked with a lot of actors who kind of go who think they are better than they actually are but do you know what those those actors like judy dench like tony hopkins they really i mean they've got an an innate talent that you can't really define but by christ they work hard at it as well like I said about Tony Hopkins, you know, he's, he's not only learnt his part, he's learnt everybody else's part. He, he will read that film script 300 plus times 
until he doesn't and that's kind of what you know as an actor what you should you should walk on stage or walk onto a film set and the lines shouldn't even be a problem shouldn't even be thinking about you know oh shit what's my next line i know we do occasionally <laughs> but but that's that's where you hope that you get to isn't like it like a muscle memory don't even have to think about what's coming out of your mouth it's all the other stuff and you know and if you've worked on all that other stuff the characterization where you are what you're doing who the other people are you know it should just come out and it should and that's when acting works brilliantly and so when you watch somebody like tony hopkins or judy dench you can't see it you can't figure out how they're doing it whereas other actors yeah. you can see how they're doing it you can see them acting you shouldn't see the process rafe rafe finds <laughs> I like Rafe Fiennes. I don't know why this has turned to a Rafe Fiennes hit job. <laughs> but you know what? And, and 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 I know people will will disagree with me, and sort of, I'm sure you'll get lots of comments. It'd be nice if we got some comments. Meryl Streep's another one. I know people sort of say she's the greatest you know, film actress of a generation. I can see her acting. It doesn't work for me. It really doesn't work for me. You know. Sorry, Meryl, but you're not going to be in a black box show now. No. You and Rafe. <laughs> You're out. They can both. They can both beg. And I'm sorry, <laughs> but no. Fucking love it. <laughs> right then, mate. After the same again. Saxons at Sutton Hoo. Green children in Woolpit. Smugglers at Sizewell. And Ed Sheeran by the Castle on the Hill. Suffolk is full of fascinating stuff, and I'm here to deep dive into it all. Join me, Emily Slade, and my guests every Friday as I look into the different areas of the county by the sea. From film to folklore, history to Haverhill, there's definitely something about Suffolk. I was watching television a couple of weeks ago and they had an, an anthropologist on. And they were asking her about what she thought would happen after this whole pandemic is gone. Mm. And she said it's very, very similar in actual fact, almost identical to the 1918-1919 Spanish flu, mm. yeah. which killed something like 50 million people plus worldwide. She said, but of course, what happened immediately afterwards was the Roaring Twenties. People went bonkers. <laughs> they went mental. But one of the big things that happened was opening of dance halls, um, you know, live music, live theatre, mm. just went bonkers in the 20s as as did syphilis so i think you know uh, <laughs> um so that's what we've got to look forward to a resurgence of a resurgence of live theater and uh stds fantastic it's going to be a marvelous decade but i think this is true it's like um i think people are, are so it's, it's strange isn't it until something's taken away people don't you know, people kind of go, oh, yeah, theatre, the arts, whatever. Nyeh. That's how the government think. Mm. Yeah. But now it's been taken away for a year. Mm. People are gagging to get mm. back to see live theatre, live music, you know, to go to a festival, to stand in a sort of hot, sweaty, bloody concert hall watching something. They just, people want to be together. And, mm. uh, I mean, last year, Dave and I we went to see a couple of things, um, outdoor production, really yeah. well attended. And I'm sort of dragging this round, you know, not that subtly to what we're doing this summer. Is sort of... Well, yeah, obviously, talking about live theatre, you've got a show lined up for the summer. Yeah. Which is Black Box Theatre Company's production of Blythe Spirit. 
I mean, it's it's weird to ask questions because Scarlett and I are in it. So, but obviously, <laughs> the benefit of our audience. What's about Chris? What's going on? <laughs> Paying attention. Plug it away. Plug away. That's just, well, I've, I've, I've always shied away of, from doing outdoor productions, partly because of the weather. Mm. You know, you can be in the middle of you know a British summer and you can just have two shit weeks of weather. <laughs> but. In actual fact, last year, say, Dave and I went to see a couple of shows, one up at St Albans, one in the New Forest, both fabulous uh, productions. And I asked asked, uh, the the companies, you know, what happens when it rains? And they went, people get wet. And I went, (laughs) we're British. Um, You know, (laughs) that's it. I think people are quite happy to go and sit there. Bring their waterproofs. As long as they've got a picnic and their bottle of wine. And that's just the actors on stage. Exactly. <laughs> and it's and they're being entertained. And they're quite happy. So I thought, well, let's do it. Let's, you know, let's let's go ahead with this. So we started planning Blythe Spirit. God, I started planning it six months ago. Yeah. Fortunately, with the easing of lockdown, it's going to be better. But we're touring throughout June. I'm hoping that we can extend that into July. So I'm I'm writing off to um, some new venues. Um, but certainly we've pretty much got June booked up. I think doing the outdoor theatre thing is great because most of the, if not all the venues that we're going to, it's very easy to social distance, Yeah, you know, keep your two metres apart. Even for people that are nervous for getting back to normal as well, yeah. that's, that's their opportunity to enjoy themselves also i think it's going to be fantastic and i think it's going to be a, a brilliant show anyway because we've got all you guys in it we've got a fabulous cast we already had a read through didn't we a couple mm. of weeks ago how many bottles of wine did you drink during that one chris i don't know I, I, I can't remember <laughs> <laughs> we could tell remember. by the last stage direction you were like and blah 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 that's the end <laughs> Um, and and again honestly i think we've got a fabulous cast we just need to get out there be performing so that's blive spirit starring scarlett bryant david mcculloch (laughs) and uh, a a few other actors as well (laughs) david you're offending people already (laughs) shock they're not hosting the podcast i love the Um, fact and, and, and i don't mean this sort of disparagingly you two have the smallest parts in this yeah. <laughs> We're the filler. But I have to say, integral parts. Uh, of course, of course. And, al- and, also, <laughs> and also, you'll be in Abigail's party later in the year. Yes, got our work cut out for us. It's quite nice to... Obviously, it was terrible when Abigail's party got postponed. I remember getting the e- yeah. when an email came through from you and I was like, yeah. I know what this email is. This is an email saying yeah. no. But it's quite yeah. nice to, it's a very odd feeling to be like, well, I know I've got a job the following year. And if lockdown continues, I know I've got a job the year after that. <laughs> Especially when you spend half your time sort of you see a casting they want to self-tape tomorrow and mm. the audition is in a couple of days sort of thing. And so it's completely complete opposite of the normal way of doing things now i've got to ask you youngsters my children um <laughs> what is this thing about self-tapes because when i was acting that wasn't a thing i suppose you had a show reel but it wasn't actually that important i don't oh, think it's a huge deal now yeah, isn't it? huge now yeah um basically yeah self-tapes are kind of the the big thing now because obviously it, with lockdown it's difficult to get actors to travel all the way to london with covid and stuff and it's proven 
I guess, a lot easier for people. They'll, this will probably continue long after lockdown has ended. Maybe. Who knows? Where basically, you know, you get sent the sides over and you've got to film yourself doing it and then be your own director, editor, maybe showreel partner as well. And then send it off as a video to the casting director and see what happens. What a ball, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They are, even though I thought to some extent that they'd be really convenient and maybe because you got to do it on your own terms and stuff, you weren't rattled with nerves. But I think that's just part and parcel of it and mm. almost makes it better. I don't know. Obviously, it's like sort of thrive or die. That is not the saying, but I'm going with Fight it. or flight? Just an atmosphere. You don't even know words. I'm doing a David I guess the the atmosphere of being in an audition room and the spontaneity of everything, you don't get that with a self-tape because you're just performing to a camera and you've no idea the reaction you're getting from the casting director or stuff like that. I mean, certainly as a theatre director, they Mm. hold no interest for me at all because for me, I need to sort of sit in front of somebody or them sit in front of me. I need to chat to them. I need to see if I'm going to get on with them. Mm. Whether they're going to be a good company member and all that sort of stuff, and you just get a feeling about somebody. I think when you when you're sat in front of somebody, chatting to them, there are no filters, there are no pretty backgrounds. It's just. I mean, certainly, Scarlett, when we met, probably not so much because I think I did a proper sort of audition with you. Although, I could, do you know what? I can't remember your audition, David. <laughs> Savage. I. Just, I <laughs> I genuinely can't remember it at all. I remember the audition very well. I remember <laughs> I remember doing uh, you gave me some pieces of script and I performed it and then you said, "Okay, can you do it like this?" So I did. Oh. It lasted about 10 minutes and I think we spent 20 minutes just stood around talking about yeah. stuff and then that was it. And then about yeah. 2 days later you called me up and I was like, "Oh, cool." It was with Scarlett. I think we I think we met for a coffee and would yak in for about 2 hours. Yeah. And then I think I asked you to sort of read a couple of things. Oh, well, while you're here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But do you know what? Again, I think you get a feeling about people. You kind of just get a feel, And I'd already seen you on stage, actually. So I kind of knew you could do the job. But kind of, you do get a feeling about people. I mean, certainly with bouncers, I had about 15, 16 guys audition. Mm-hmm. Some were horrific. You kind of think, oh, my God, why, why do you think you can act? <laughs> Some were truly, truly awful. Callum, who I eventually did cast, came in in a Hawaiian shirt. Oh no, he didn't come in in a Hawaiian shirt. He saw. I said, "Would you like to, you know, read your, you know, do your piece?" And he went, "Hang on a minute." He put on a Hawaiian shirt, and instead of sunglasses, you know those three D glasses you get at the cinema. Yeah. He put those on instead of sunglasses and did this bit. I'm watching him. <laughs> this is so fucking weird. But he had something about him. You know, I kind of knew that he would fit in with the production. That's the thing. Like, I know self tapes are convenient, but you don't. You lose that human connection. I know you need to with COVID and whatnot, but you lose that human connection Absolutely. of being in a room with yeah. someone and actually yeah. seeing them. I would say even part of it's lost in a in a Zoom, don't you think? I yeah. I fucking detest the things. I'd so yeah. much rather meet up and not purely for the fact that I haven't seen another human in a year. <laughs> Apart from your boyfriend. Yes, that's from him. 
um, but do you know what I mean? I, he says to me, oh, I've got a Zoom call with so-and-so and so-and-so. What do you reckon? I'm going to offend lots of people, whoever I've been on a Zoom call with now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm like, I don't want to. And he's like, yeah. don't be so horrible. They want to see us. I'm like, I don't care. I don't want to. I fucking detest the things. It feels so false. I hate the awkward atmosphere and the awkwardness that hangs oh, in the horrible. air. It's shit. Mm. It's not human interaction like I know it sort of thing. And like any of us know it. Certainly back in the day when, when I was acting and I'd go into a, uh, an audition, I was an all right actor. I was okay. But I was never I was never going to be the best actor in the room, and put it that way. But I kind of had the confidence that I would I'd get most of the auditions I went up for. And it wasn't because I put necessarily put in the best audition. It's because afterwards they'd sort of say, you'd have a chat. Have you got any questions? I'd always have a question. You know, if somebody yeah. sort of says, have you got anything to ask? Have you got a question about, you know, have something to, to talk about. People are always worried if they haven't worked for six months. But you've always been doing something. Mm. If you've been taking classes or you've been sort of doing, you know. So I think, again, I think it's that thing of how you present yourself in an audition room is as important as the, you know, you know what you present, you know, if you're asked to sort of read something or whatever. I mean, I've, I've auditioned a lot of people and I've had people give fantastic readings. You think... Yeah, but I couldn't fucking work with them. And I've, give, I've also had people give truly awful readings, but there's something about them. You kind of go, yeah, you'll be all right. You're going to work hard. Mm. And you get on with the person. So it's a, it's, it's a very odd thing. I think people kind of feel, I don't know, certainly when I was an actor, I think, you know, that idea that you have to go into an audition room and be brilliant. No. I think what or what directors are looking for is, can I work with this person have they got something to give to the production will they work hard i can remember um donkeys years ago auditioning somebody i said can you do an, an american accent I went, no <laughs> it was an american part and they went no and i went okay she said but i'll learn it i will yeah. learn an american accent so she did this uh, audition and she had a broad sort of scouse accent she was nervous as hell, but there was something about her. This other woman came in for auditioning for another part in the same play, and she put in an absolute textbook audition. But on the last night of the show, she did exactly the same character she did in the audition. She never progressed. Mm -hmm. She never, you know. And um, whereas the girl who couldn't do the American accent was nervous, whatever, turned out you know, she was fabulous because she really did work. So I think you get a, you get you do get a sense about somebody from that audition, and especially being in the same room. Mm. That's why I wonder whether the the uh, these self tapes how much they're really worth outside of sort of lockdown conditions. I don't know. And I've seen people that I know, and I've seen their show reels or their you know their their self tapes, and you think I know you're better than that. Mm. How do you feel about that, Dave? Because I know wholeheartedly because it was show real this is going to date this but it was show real share day i i i, I have nothing against the day i think it's nice no to, you know, no nor do i actors I share all their show reels but mm -hmm. so there's must be thousands of them it's a great day and i think it's really good to, for everyone to share their work and share a sense of community but there's thousands of them the chances of of your show reel being sheets being seen are 
is quite slim. Being Michael Sheened. Um, <laughs> I personally, I I loathe the sharing of material like that. And it's it's mad because I know people go on about it. It's your own business. You're the CEO of you, blah, 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 mm. blah, blah, blah. But I know full well that if you're in a room with me, yeah. you'll see something different. Do you know what I mean? The stuff I've got in my show reel, it's there because it has to be there. Sometimes you have to pay a hell of a lot of money to get like a show reel thing. Yeah, so exactly. half the time yeah. you've got to use exactly. whatever screen performances you have, which could be quite limiting. And whatever, whoever's edited it down to be. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You may have thought you gave the best cut on a different part, but the other actor didn't. And so it, it gets the chop mm. and the version that comes out isn't what you necessarily... Hopeful. But again, you know, for for both of you, you know, your screen time is limited or or none. So I don't think there's anything wrong with actually sticking a camera in front of you and doing a Shakespeare or doing a comedy piece. But I think it would probably be if you're going to do that, get a director to direct you mm. rather than just do it yourself. Because mm. I don't think actors necessarily are very good at directing themselves. No. I'm speaking from experience, no. <laughs> That's last orders at the bar, please. Last orders at the bar. I heard a few years ago, which horrified me, that actors were only taken on by agencies if they had a certain number of followers on Twitter or on Instagram. Or, and you kind of go, what the f***? That's got nothing to do with nothing. That's got nothing to do with mm. how good you are as an actor. That's similar as the, like, influencer yeah. thing isn't yeah. it if you've built up a an audience or a fan base already yourself then they're you're sort of yeah. worth your weight mm. whereas if that's not the case and, and you're only going to bring your family they're not bothered <laughs> yeah i suppose what they're thinking is that you know theater companies or whatever can tap into your fan base but mm. why would a, a non-named actor have thirty thousand people on their you know, on their social media. Because they've set up an OnlyFans account and sold pictures of their feet. Well, exactly. <laughs> but it comes down to that. that and that that's the scary thing. And that's that's the way, you know, if that's the way the business is going, it's going in very, very the wrong direction. Judy Dench didn't have a Twitter page after all. Not way back then. I don't think she has now. Judy Dench didn't get to where she is because she hasn't, you know, 10,000, a million Twitter followers. Mm, exactly. She got there because she yeah. can do the job. And it would be a shame if the business went that way. Having said that, yeah, uh, there was again there was something came up on um, on Facebook about um, somebody's looks, and the truth of it is, it's still theatre and certainly television and theatre uh, and film is very much looks based. I once uh, years ago I met this actor and. I want to say his name was Jeff. Anyway, he was he was quite a well-known actor. He was huge. He was enormous. He said, uh, and he said to me, you know, how you doing? I went, mm, you know, getting jobs here, there, you know, bits and bobs. He went, problem is with you, you look like every other actor. He said, because mm. I'm big, um, 20 stone, you know, and ugly, he said, I work all the time. Wow. And he accepted that. And I thought, good on you, actually. Yeah. And he did work all the time. He worked all over the world worked all the time and he'd accepted the fact that that's what he was you know the big man mm. you know he tended to play sort of slightly comic characters and I think you know as actors we kind of think I want to be able to play everything that's not reality if you can find your niche yeah 
go for it. Go for it. If if you can actually, if you can make a if you can make a career out of finding that one character, it might sound like you've given up, but you're working. So typecasting isn't a bad thing after all. Mm. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> not if it pays the bills. It's, it is. It's a horrible way. It's, it's that one. Ooh, don't want to be typecast. Better be working than not. Yeah. Exactly. That is a career. Mm. Go for it. And if you're good enough, you will eventually break out of that and get offered other things. Yeah. And um, and so that's not a bad thing. That mm. really genuinely is no. not a bad thing. We'd all like to think we're versatile, and we all are versatile. But mm. who wouldn't want to employ you if they know you do a good job of something? Exactly, that yeah. is also sort of it doesn't make sense, does yeah. it? For you to be like, oh no, I'm not doing it, even yeah. though I'm fucking good at it, and it's yeah. tried and tested. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, it's beneath me now. I've done it already. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, uh, oh, Christ, actors can be arseholes, can't they? <laughs> I was about to say, that's a really good place to end it. But I think ending it on <laughs> actors can be arseholes is an even better <laughs> ending of the episode. Before we go, Chris, obviously, Blythe, yes, Blythe Spirit coming out summer 2021. Yep. I know this because it's yep. your background on Zoom. <laughs> Yeah. Um, how do people find out where it's performing? How do people get tickets? Where do they go? Hopefully, in the next two or three weeks, uh, we'll have set up a ticket source. Well, by that time, this episode will come out. That'll because this episode's been out two weeks. So I'll ask again: if people want to come and see Blythe Spirit, which I'm sure they will, <laughs> and get tickets, where's the best place for them to go? Is there a website yeah. for Black Box Theatre Company that will have all the information on it? You can visit the Black Box website, which is, if I can remember, www.blackbox.com. Oh, and and on to the wine now. <laughs> I'll save you, Chris. The right. website is www.blackboxtheatrecompany.com. Look at this. I'm doing Perfect. your own plugging for you. And with the smallest parts, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> but also, we've got Instagram pages. Yes, Black Box Theatre Company. Just search that on Instagram. And, and Twitter. <laughs> Twitter, it's it's BLK Box Theatre Co. Because someone else has stolen Black Box Theatre. <laughs> Listen. And Facebook. You've missed the... Black Box Theatre Company on Facebook. Listen, I'll put all the social medias out when we're sober. Yeah. <laughs> on, our, on our pages on Two Actors Podcast. Just look for Black Box <laughs> Theatre Company. Blythe Spirit. You'll find, you'll find us somewhere if you really want to and it's worth it because it's going to be fabulous <laughs> even though you two have the smallest parts uh, poor david you shouldn't insult him like that we don't want to know about his undercarriage behave well david i've cast him i've cast him as dr bradman i don't even know why he's in the show i've already cut his wife <laughs> thanks i might not well i might not be in it by the time the show comes out <laughs> Stay tuned, <laughs> I told you, Dave. Filler. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much, Chris, for coming on and for sharing your oh, pearls of wisdom. Two, my two theatre children. <laughs> Thanks, Are we doing dad. virtual hugs? <laughs> virtual hugs. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Social oh. distancing, even, even virtually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant thank you Chris love you too love you love you it's been brilliant what are you two still doing here go on sling your hook 
See you later, Davey boy. See you later, Scarlotta. We'd like to give a massive thanks to Rotaries for our soundtrack and to Megan Siggers for our artwork. And an even bigger thanks to all of you choosing to listen to us waffle on. Find us on all social media platforms and make sure to subscribe to us because we're actors. We need validation.